What a wonderful song that is, to see the Lord as our shepherd, the one who delights in giving us his goodness and his mercy and his presence to his people, no matter what they are going through. Our text this morning is Luke 18, 9 through 14. And as you are turning there, I'd like to tell you a story that will really help us I believe, see what Jesus wants to teach us this morning. Two men went to church to worship God. Their names are Jack and Joe. Jack knew his way around the church. He'd been brought up in church ever since he could remember. He was a very religious man and took his religion very seriously. He read his Bible regularly, even memorized big portions of the Bible when he was a child and still continued that as part of his regular routine. He prayed regularly. Even he would refrain from eating in order to get in more Bible study and more prayer. He liked the idea of being this highly principled young man who would never do anything immoral or wicked. You see, like, un, like, unlike his peers, he never got involved with smoking or getting drunk on the weekends. He also had a very high standard for integrity with his finances, never getting into gambling or under the table or off the books type of revenue streams, or even getting himself in situations where he would be compromised. He sought to keep his life pure as well with his relationship to others of the opposite sex and always tried to be the perfect gentleman, never seeking to take advantage of any situation. In fact, he felt the best date that he could give a girl would be a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. He sought to keep his conversation with others clean, never using profanity never resorting to crude language, not even Christian euphemisms. As Jack entered the church on Sunday, he glowed with an inward sense of gratification. How reassuring it was to know that he was a good Christian with nothing to confess, nothing to feel ashamed of, Nothing at all. He even patted himself on the back for making this church great in all of the ways he served. He thought to himself, how could any church be any better than this one? We're obviously the best church here in our town. And then he caught the eye of a familiar figure who was wandering into the church behind him. It was Joe. What on earth is he doing here? He doesn't have the right to come to church. Not after all he's done. Joe wandered into the church hoping to feel and be unnoticed. He was already second-guessing his decision to come. He hadn't been in church for years. In fact, he felt thoroughly uncomfortable in the place. As he sat down, he kept looking around nervously fully expecting at any moment 
a church leader would descend upon him and force him to leave immediately. He was unsure of where to sit, or even if there was some special ritual that he was forgetting. But after some deliberating, he slid cautiously into the seats in one of the back rows in the corner, hoping he would be left alone. He even considered putting his head down to hide himself from all of these good, perfectly dressed Christian people in the room. It's clear he didn't belong here. As you may have guessed, Joe was not the religious sort at all. He had had several run-ins with law enforcement and made his money selling drugs or stealing from others. In fact, he had just had a major argument with his mother this morning and she had kicked him out of the house for stealing once again from her purse. But that wasn't all. His girlfriend had left him earlier last week because he was not being faithful to her. On the weekends, he was usually found to be drunk or causing trouble wherever he went. Except for this weekend. You might be wondering, why on earth is this guy coming to church? You see, Joe had finally come to the end of himself. He had no other place to go. Everything he thought would satisfy him had just left him empty and broken. There was no glow of satisfaction with Joe. He had everything to confess, everything to feel ashamed about, and knew he needed something that was outside of himself to save him. As the service unfolded, he felt a lump to his throat, a deep sense that he was trapped with no way out. Who can help me, he thought. It was at this point he put his head between his knees, as if weighed down by all of his guilt and shame, clenching his fists and crying out, Oh God, can there be mercy for me? God, be merciful to me. A sinner. I tell you, it was not Joe who went home. It wasn't Jack who went home justified that day. It was Joe. Joe went home a believer. Now, for some of us today, this story doesn't sit well at all. Why would an awful wretch receive mercy and walk away justified in God's sight while the good Christian gets rejected by God? This is mind-boggling. This is counterintuitive. This shouldn't be happening. And yet, we read it right here in Luke 18. I'm fully aware this morning, this is a passage that we have heard backwards and forwards You could probably act out the story yourself. Some of you could even preach a sermon on this. You've heard it so many times. And so I don't want to get up here and just run through this text and just be one more sermon. I really want us to look and see what Jesus has to say to us because it is, out of all the stories of Scripture, it's included here for us. And it's included here for you. It's included here 
for me. But it is counterintuitive. We need to acknowledge that. And what we would have to say is none of these things are bad things that the Pharisee gives as his resume. This is the kind of guy you want as your next door neighbor. He's the kind of guy you want as a coworker, as a friend. These would be great qualifications for a potential mate for your daughter. <laughs> but Jesus surprises everyone as he loves to do. He surprises everyone in the, in, in, with this story where the bad guy gets mercy and the good guy gets rejected. The one who was thought to be the closest to God is the one furthest away from God. And the one who was thought to be furthest away from God is the one who is brought near through mercy. The one who is justified by God. Now let me make this clear. Jesus is not condoning the lifestyle of the tax collector, nor does He give high marks of praise for the, for the Pharisee. His point is to get at the heart level of where our place of trust is and to show us, as Luke unfolds in, a, in much of his, of his book here, how a person enters the kingdom. So, where does mercy begin? If it begins with my merits and my list of accomplishments, then I am entitled, you are entitled to receive something from God. He owes you for what you have done for Him. However, if it begins with God and His response to the humble and contrite heart, then there is no such entitlement on the table. And our accomplishments really don't mean much. In fact, as Isaiah said, they're more like filthy rags. And so, instead of being... Instead, we become these undeserving recipients of mercy. And we become these recipients of mercy through Jesus Christ. So here they are. Two men. Two prayers. Two destinies. Which one do you identify with? I have to tell you, studying this this week, I thought I identified with one. But I came to realize, as I continued to study this passage, and continued to listen to what Jesus was saying, that I was wrong. And my heart was exposed. I wish today I say that I could identify with the publican, with the tax collector, that I live in self-awareness every day, that I'm in deep in desperate need of God's mercy, but I don't. And I'm asking you to look into God's Word, not look at someone else, but look into God's Word for yourself today and ask yourself, who do I identify with in this passage? Let's see these two men and these two prayers as they unfold. Clay's already read the passage for us, but he says here in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the audience. 
Does anyone here today identify with this audience? Trusted in themselves. Unfortunately, we can identify all too often with this. And so Luke is giving, he's pulling back the curtain and showing us this is who Jesus is directing the story at. Now we see, first of all, the prayer of the Pharisee. And one of the things that we could call this is the pride of self-justification. The pride of self-justification. The Pharisee is introduced to us, and he is going to the temple to pray, just like the tax collector. But he's standing in the middle of everywhere, of everyone, in full view, and the standing isn't the big deal. People would stand and pray quite regularly there, but he's standing and for the point of drawing the attention to himself. And it says the Pharisee standing prayed this to himself. I believe that's the right translation there. Prayed this to himself. He's already off on the wrong foot. Praying this to himself. God, I thank you. He directs his attention to God, but this prayer doesn't get off the ground. I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, just, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, what kind of, um, of perspective do you have when it comes to Pharisees? When you hear the name Pharisee, what comes to your mind? Well, back in this time, the Pharisees' position would have been highly esteemed. You see, we have this negative view of the Pharisee, but we would be in the minority. Jesus was in the minority, calling them hypocrites, vipers, and whitewashed tombs. Those weren't the three top things you would describe a Pharisee with, but Jesus did, because that's who they really were. But people didn't know that. They couldn't see that playing out. No, they were highly esteemed. These were the top of the top, the best of the best, the closest people to God. They were studying the Scriptures constantly. They were Highly esteemed, highly regarded. These people were never thought evil of. But they were also highly regarded for their religious commitment. They were well respected for their piety and their knowledge of the scriptures. But they were also very good citizens. They would never sell out the people of Israel. They would love the law. They would love upholding the law. They would love doing what is best for the people of Israel. They also memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. How many of you have done that this year? You've memorized all five books of the Pentateuch. I'm not. I can't even remember my iPhone password sometimes. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're struggling in this area, right? You need to admit that. But these guys were no slouches. They memorized massive portions of the Bible. They fasted once a year. We read in this passage, this Pharisee is fasting how many times a week? Twice. They tithed on everything they possessed. They 
gave themselves tirelessly to studying the law of God. They were scrupulous. They were the model of holiness. And they developed a religious lifestyle that was second to none. They would have been viewed as the people closest to God. But then the Pharisee opens his mouth. And we hear this prayer. And what comes out of his mouth? A self-proclaimed righteousness. As one theologian put it, he glances at God, but he contemplates himself. His prayer is nothing more than self-congratulations. And it's based on all the things he's not done. It's this negative obedience. I thank you for what I am not. Now some scholars say, well, he is at least directing his prayer toward God, but as you get deeper into the prayer... God is mentioned at the beginning, but what you see is this letter I, 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 I. See it five times throughout the prayer. This is a smokescreen for the Pharisees' true need for mercy and forgiveness. But he's congratulating himself. I thank you that I'm not like these poor, unfortunate souls that are around me. That I'm not like other men who actually need God. I have all the righteousness that I need. Because I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm not like this, let's pick the worst guy in the room, the tax collector over here. It's a self Proclaimed righteousness. But what's the requirement? What is the expectation? If you go back to the book of Leviticus, which the Pharisee would have known, what is, G, what, what is not Jesus, although he did you know, write everything and obviously in here, but what is the Holy Spirit saying to us in Leviticus? Be holy, for I am holy. He establishes the standard of absolute holiness. Can anyone meet that standard? No. Matthew 5.48 Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, God's requirement is perfection. You have to be as good as God, as holy as God. You have to be as righteous as God. Even Romans 3.20 says, By the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified. See, the problem here is not that this Pharisee has produced the righteousness. The problem here is that he trusts in his own righteousness. But that's not enough. He goes further. He has a self-proclaimed superiority. Do Do you see how subtle this is? He's directing his praise to God, but he's lifting himself up, pointing out his superior Goodness. The Pharisee is blind. The comparison can't be between his good deeds versus the tax collector's evil deeds. It's between God's holiness and his filthy rags of attempted righteousness. There is no comparison.
The Pharisee is like a man who goes to the doctor for a routine appointment. The doctor comes in to see him. And before the doctor can say anything about the tests that were just run and, and the blood work that was done, the examination that was done, he starts touting how he's just the picture of health. Never felt better. I'm eating like a horse. I have the greatest physique that I've had in years. I thought to myself as I walked into this doctor's office, boy, look at those poor people here in the waiting room that actually need something. I'm, I'm good. I feel great. Never felt better. And the doctor says, well, I'm glad that you feel great, but do you know that you have a tumor in your body that's filled with cancer and it's going to kill you? But no, I, I feel great. I look great. But what if what you're feeling is deceiving you? What if you're really not okay? What if you're really not fine? That's what the Pharisee's doing here. He's doing this self-analysis, this self-assessment, where he continues to be the hero, continues to be the one who's got it all together. Now, does this in any way picture your life or my life at times? Would we ever be guilty of self-justification? And again, here's how subtle this is. We would say that justification comes by what? Faith alone. Through Christ alone. Through Scripture alone. Through grace alone. We would just, I mean, for the glory of God alone, we would just rattle that off. We're not justified by works. We're justified by like what Christ did for us, by His work. I'm not trusting in anything else for my salvation other than what Jesus did. Now, when you look at your life, though, when I look at my life, is that really what I believe? Or do I see, see myself as being saved by grace, but now I will be sanctified by this body of work called self-justification. And it's been so long since I was dead in my trespasses and sins that I don't really see myself that way anymore. No, I'm much better now. I really needed God's richness and mercy and grace then, but I don't necessarily need it now. Could it be that you and I have been duped have been deceived, that we outgrow our need for grace, that we outgrow somehow our need for mercy, may it never be for us as a church where mercy is something for other people. No. We're no better than the Pharisee. We, we will walk in our own pride we will look back at our past accomplishments and, and say, Lord, look at what I've done for you. John MacArthur says uh, this about this text. He says, the dominant religious idea in the world is the idea that good people go to heaven. That if you're moral or religious, you can achieve salvation, escape judgment, 
and become acceptable to God. This is the people that the story is directed at. Is this passage here in Luke, though, the first time in the the Bible that we see self-justification played out? So a lot of times when you hear about justification, you might think of this passage or you might think of maybe another illustration of a courtroom where we're the guilty party and Christ steps up and says, no, I will take all the punishment. I will be in your stead. And the gavel falls on Christ and the judgment is, his, is taken on him. The wrath of God is appeased by Christ. We see that. But actually, the first time we see self-justification is in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God and they sought to cover themselves, they sought to hide themselves. Adam and Eve were looking to cover themselves with leaves of their own making and sought to blame others as a cover-up justifying themselves instead of being covered in the mercy of God. What happens here? What does, Jesus, what does God do in that passage? He covers them. He, he slays the animal, spills the blood, and covers them with the skins of that animal as a picture. This is something God does. God justifies. God gives Mercy. And I think for a lot of us, we look to all kinds of things for this covering. It might not be an apron of leaves, but there are many things that you and I, if we're not careful, if we don't take this to heart, we will walk in the pride of our own self-justification. The Pharisee goes through his whole thing. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Look at all that I have done. This self-proclaimed righteousness. This self-proclaimed superiority. But then, we see the humility of true self-awareness. The humility of true self-awareness. We see this in the tax collector's prayer. I want you to know, something that you probably already have heard before. But in case you haven't, the tax collector was someone who was despised by society. They were looked at as traitors. They were looked at as thieves. They exploited others for selfish gain. There have been many comparisons over the years of what tax collectors would look like in our society, and I really don't even want to go into detail what those, those things or jobs would be because it would be despicable to talk about them. But, that, but I want you, when you think of tax collector, again, sometimes our minds run to this passage, but people on this day would not have looked at tax collectors very favorably. There would be no high regard. There would be no respect shown. These people are traitors. These people are thieves. Collaborating with the enemy. The scum of Jewish society. They were outcasts. They were untouchables. Not even their alms would be allowed to be given in the temple to the poor. Their money was tainted. It's interesting that Jesus is telling this parable and 
In Luke 19, who is he having dinner with? Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And as one theologian put it, I found this very very humorous. It could be that Zacchaeus was in a tree, not because he was just short, but because it was for his own protection. (laughs) People hated tax collectors. Hated them. And Jesus is presenting these two on on both sides of the spectrum, both extremes. What is his prayer? First of all, we see a deliberate posture of humility. The Bible says in verse 13, he stood afar off. That's not just where he stood, but it also depicts where he was spiritually. He was far off from God. As soon as I read that, I was thinking of Ephesians where it says, those who were far off, he what? Brought near. That's you and me. The tax collector is standing far off, cut off from God because of his sin. He said he would not even lift up his face before God. This depicts how he felt as he stood before God, even hiding his face, not even looking upward. And the Bible also says that he beat his chest, beat his breast. This would be something you would not see very often in the temple. This would be very embarrassing, very humiliating. You might see it when someone was mourning the death of a loved one. But even then it was kind of understood that this, is, this just isn't done. And he's, just, he's beating himself. He's humiliated in front of everyone. So what do we see in this prayer? Well, the Pharisees' prayer takes up verse 11 and verse 12. Several words, flowery language. Verse 13, it's just seven words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See a desperate plea for God's mercy. A desperate plea for God's mercy. Tassel's prayer is directed at God, appealing to His mercy, not His own personal merits or accomplishments. God, I'm directing this to You. God, if You can hear me. I know I don't even deserve to be talking to You. But God, I'm in need of one thing. One thing that's outside of me. I can't fix my broken life. I can't make this better. I need you. And there's also this deep self-awareness of his sin and his need for God. The tax collector had true self-awareness. He knew himself to be a debtor to God. He had violated God's holy standard and needed his sin to be atoned for. It didn't matter how much money he had. It didn't matter all the prominence he had had through with the Roman government. He needed God. So we see this humility of this true self-awareness. Hopefully, as, as you're walking through this passage, you're starting to see this. As if realizing the, the humble walk, the humble prayer, the one who is showing humility is the one who is in desperate need of God. 
That's where the mercy begins. Number three, we see the stunning display of atoning mercy. Mercy is defined here in this passage quite differently than it is anywhere else in the New Testament. It's 171 times that mercy is seen in the New Testament, referring to compassion and love and pity. But here, it is different. Totally different word. It has the idea of propitiation. Atonement for sin. Lord, propitiate me. Lord, atone for my sin. Expiate this guilt and this shame. I want to be rid of it. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, this was the kind of language that referred to the mercy seat. Which is where atonement was made for sin and a blood sacrifice. And the New Testament propitiation means that Jesus' death on the cross, all the sins that we've committed, that put away God's wrath against His people once and for all. Christ is the only one who can propitiate sin. We can't do it. We can't absorb the wrath of God. Only He can, and He's the only one who did. Ephesians 2.4 reminds us that we were under the wrath of God, but God who was rich in mercy with His great love that He loved us. That's what's on display here. It is He's asking, He is pleading, He's begging for atonement for His sin. And we see this mercy displayed. Through these three things. I'll put them on the screen for you. Justification comes through mercy. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, he went to his house justified. He went to his house right before God. Well, what about all the merits? What about all the accomplishments? What about all the accolades of the Pharisee? Well, see, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many merits you have. It only matters if you have atonement, if you have mercy. It's the only way to be justified. And someone in here might say, well, don't religious people go to heaven? No. People who have been justified by God's mercy go to heaven. Well, where, where's the boasting then? Where's all the, the things that all of us have done? Well, I think, I think we have it backwards then, right? The, the works follow justification. We should be seeking to memorize the Bible. We should be seeking to pray to the Lord. We should be seeking to do good for others. We should be seeking to serve in the church. But that is an outflow of our justification, not the reason we're justified. Self-exaltation also ends in humiliation. He says here, as it says in Luke 14.11, Jesus is, is, is repeating himself here, as he often does, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. For everyone who lifts himself up will be put down or abased or humiliated. Self-humility ends in exaltation. It's backwards the way we would think, but this is how God works. He who humbles himself will be exalted. There are people here on extreme sides of the spectrum. 
One man has exhausted all of his efforts and is bankrupt in himself. And he throws himself on God's mercy as his only way out. The other believes he has everything he needs in himself. So his application. Mercy does not begin with you and your list of merits. It begins with God and his response to the humble and contrite heart. What covering are you trusting in this morning? Self-justification or God's atoning mercy? A lot of times we look at ourselves as being covered in church involvement, covered in service to Christ, covered in spiritual disciplines, covered in personal wealth, covered in accolades and accomplishments, covered in our perceived morality. Are you covered by mercy? You see, the church is not a museum of perfect people to be admired week after week. It's a hospital for the broken who are in desperate need of mercy. So I ask you, are you gripped with this daily need of mercy? You see, God's mercy comes to tax collectors. Thieves on a cross, women caught in adultery, demon-possessed men, Pharisees who visit him in the night, Nicodemus, disciples who deny him three times, prodigal sons, and you and me. I'd like to close today's sermon with a reading from the Valley of Vision. Wonderful book of prayers. It's called Divine Mercies. And with this, we'll close. Thou eternal God, oh, how I mourn my sin, my ingratitude, my vileness, the scenes that witness my offending tongue. All things in heaven and earth around within condemn me. You see all of my misdeeds. The darkness is light to you. The cruel accuser who justly charges me. Your countenance which knows all of my secret sins. Your righteous law, your holy word, my sin-soiled conscience, my private and public life on display. My neighbors, myself, they all know. And I deny them not. I don't frame any excuses. I just confess to you, Father, I have sinned. Yet, still I live and fly repenting to your outstretched arm. For you will not cast me off, for Jesus has brought me near. You will not condemn me, for he died in my place. You will not mark the mountains of all of my sin, because Christ has leveled them all. And in his beauty, he covers all of my deformities. Oh God. I bid farewell to my sin by clinging to His cross, hiding in His wounds, and sheltering in His side. Let's pray together.